Thank you both. Weren't those great leading us this morning? Kind of, I'll tell you, there was some last minute working around with some sickness and things. So thank you so much, Tyler, Cece, for leading us this morning and uh, for being here and serving us so well. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, find Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31, been working our way chapter by chapter, section by section through the book of Exodus, and we're out of the major instructions about the tabernacle, and the text is going to take a turn in the weeks ahead. We sort of get a little bit of a break. We're going to hear the last little bit about the tabernacle today, and then we're going to find out next week what's been going on while Moses has been on the mountain. And let me tell you, it's not good. Some of y'all are going to find out. Again, I encourage you to come back next week or even read ahead a little bit as uh, there's been some fun with a golden calf occurring at the bottom of the mountain while Moses is up at the top. But in the meantime, we get the final instructions, and here he's going to answer the who question. Who is going to build and do all of this? Look with me, Exodus chapter 31. The Word of God says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft." And behold, I have appointed with him Olahiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that's in it and all the furnishings of the temple, the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, the soul shall be cut off from among the people." Six days shall work be done, but the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath, the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. This is the word of God. There are many different kinds of work, and there's many different kinds of rest. 
Some of you work with your hands, and I'm envious for you because over the last week, I have had a honey-do list to put together a plastic toy box, and as I speak to you this morning, the pieces are still in the closets. It has not been put together, nor do I think they should make it so complicated to put together basic furniture. Amen? Others rest in various ways. Some of you, the way that you rest is they just, you just want to be in the house. You want to close the doors. You want to lock the door. You maybe want to put on a good movie. Whereas for me, if you lock me in the house for too long, ain't nobody resting in that house. Today's passage is all about work and rest. And let me give you a little bit of context before we get to work and see what this passage teaches us about both work and rest. Start at the end of the passage, verse 18 reminds us that everything we've been reading has been continuous speech from God to Moses on the mountain. It really started all the way back in Exodus chapter 20 when God gave the Ten Commandments, but he's broken up the speech a little bit, and these instructions for the tabernacle had started all the way back in chapter 25. And the passage ends with God giving to Moses tablets of stone. You may have have images of this as you think about the Ten Commandments. God handing down these tablets of stone on which, likely, the Ten Commandments were written. But he's also given to the people a section from chapter 21 to 23 about how those laws were to work out, particularly in the nation of Israel. And he's also given them instructions about the building of the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle is the, is the tent that they were to build as they wandered through the wilderness. God says, I need a mobile home. And so they build him a mobile home of tent where the people could meet with him. It's actually called the tent of meeting in many places throughout the passage. God has told them what to build and when to build it, which was now. But now in chapter 31, he's going to answer the question, who is to build it? Because you all know if you've ever done a big building project, the who is almost as important as the what. Who's going to do it? What firm do you call when you live in the deserts to build a project like this? And above all, they were told what to keep in mind as they are building. And this passage is here to teach us about the worker and the way. It's actually here to teach us four truths about work. If you work, this is a passage for you. Let's look at the first thing we see, that Exodus 31 teaches us to work according to God's calling. Work according to God's calling. Look at verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. You've heard of Bob the Builder? Let's meet Bezalel the Builder, right? So we get introduced to our subcontractor, one of the two men who's going to oversee the building of the tabernacle. And God gets Moses' attention. He says, see here, Moses, I have called Bezalel by name to oversee the crew and complete the project. In verse 6, we're going to meet his assistant, Obaliab. But it's interesting, the first thing we read about Bezalel is his family history. He says, hey, that's Uri's son. 
That's the grandson of her. Some of y'all, if you've grown up in this community, you know you're really more known by who your dad and your granddad is, maybe more than you're known about anything that you do. And we don't know much about Yuri, his father, but her is actually a very familiar name. Her was a close friend of Moses throughout the wilderness. In fact, if you look back at Exodus chapter 17, as Amalek is waging war against the people of Israel, Moses is on the mountain holding up his hands, right? And as Moses holds up his hands, the people win the battle. But as his hands begin to droop, the people lose. And there's two of Moses' right hand and left hand man there to hold his hands up and keep them steady. And those two guys were Aaron and Hur. Bezalel's grandfather is right there holding up Moses' hand so that the people win the battle. They played an important role in supporting Moses. And we also see that Hur was present on the mountain in Exodus 24 when God appears in that incredible scene that they saw on Sinai. Her likely served as a priest, as an inner circle advisor to Moses, while Bezalel served with his hands building God's house. And I think it's important that we consider and ask this, who did the more important and more holy work? I hear all the time from folks as they hear that, you know, that I'm in ministry and they learn that, they're like, thank you for doing the Lord's work. And yet, in reality, as God's people, all of us, in one sense or another, are able to do the Lord's work. Many of us might be tempted to think that her was more important and more holy and that his work was was more significant. But friends, in the kingdom of God, it's never about who's more important and more significant, but rather who does what only they can do. Both men used their gifts to worship God. Both men did holy work according to their unique calling. It's likely that her had the ability to administer and, to, and leadership. But friends, if you had handed him a hammer and needed him to build a toy box, you were in trouble. But her's younger and more able grandson was able to use his talents to build the house where God would dwell with his people for generations to come. In fact, notice how emphatic God says it in verse 2. I have called by name Bezalel. That is what I have set him apart to do. This is something only he could do. This was a calling he had to be faithful in. And we in the church talk a lot about calling, but I think we often give folks an unrealistic picture of calling. We put a lot of pressure on, the, on young people. Hear me, you don't have to just wake up one day and know what you're going to do for the rest of your life. Whew, breathe it out, right? We put so much pressure. You've got to know exactly what you're going to do. By the time you're 18, friends, I didn't know a lot of things by the time I was 18, right? Friends, what if calling was less about personal discovery and more about divine preparation? What if instead it was to search your insides and discover this one thing is what I'm going to do and more about preparing yourself for all that God could have in front of you? Consider this, God had been working on Bezalel and preparing him long before this moment. I 
can't imagine that he just woke up one day with these skills and talents. While God can do that, that isn't how God typically works. God had been working on Bezalel long before he called him. And notice, Moses doesn't respond with shock and go, him? Really? He's like, oh yes, of course, it would be Bezalel who did this. Quietly, carefully, privately, Bezalel was honing his skills. And in the process, God was carefully, quietly, and privately crafting him for his calling. And I would want you to consider maybe God is doing the same with you. Maybe God has been doing the same with you. Maybe God has been using the pain of practice and perseverance to produce your purpose. Friends, there is not a single famous musician who didn't have the pain of scales, of doing scales and calluses on their hands. There's not a skilled craftsman who hasn't had splinters and hammered their thumb a few times. There is no top athlete, even the most gifted, who had the most natural gifting, who didn't also practice and exercise to get there. Those who work with people often go through lots of personal pain before they're prepared to really serve others in front of them. Whatever God is calling you to do, it will not come without toil and preparation. You will not just wake up one day and suddenly God will give you everything that you need. It's often a process over time. But no, friends, God is using every quiet moment. He uses every bad sermon to prepare men to preach. He uses every painful callous to raise up artists. He uses every long and frustrating night for a purpose that might come at a moment's notice. God calls Bezalel that to be the leader of the project. He was no stranger to Moses, and he was certainly no stranger to the God who had been preparing him for this. God had called him, prepared him, and he would not leave him. And friends, God, wherever he has you, he wants you to do what only you can do. For him, for his glory, and for the good of those around you. We work according to the calling of God, knowing that he desires you to be faithful where he's planted you. I doubt this was Bezalel's first building project. He might have started with building some Legos. Might have started with helping with some other projects. Among the Hebrews, you don't become the builder of the tabernacle overnight. But rather, God was at work for the moment that that came. He, be faithful where he's planted you, knowing that he may be preparing a harvest for you on the other side. And also notice that God didn't call him to do this work alone. This brings us to the second reality, that we are to work empowered by God's Spirit. We work according to the calling of God, but we also work empowered by the Spirit of God. Notice verse 3, still speaking about Bezalel. He says this, And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every 
craft. Notice, being filled with the Spirit meant that he was able to have ability, knowledge, craftsmanship, and skill. Think of him like a sort of jack of all trades. The biblical word for this is he had wisdom. And wisdom, sometimes the problem is people think wisdom means you just know a lot of stuff. Whereas wisdom is really more about application of what you know. Friends, it's good old boy knowledge. Bezalel had street smarts by the Spirit of God. Friends, he probably wore overalls, drove a pickup truck, and always had a toolbox in it. And notice, it wasn't a priest, a prophet, or a king, but he was Spirit-filled. It's interesting, this is only the third mention of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit hovered over the water at creation. In the life of Joseph, others had looked at Joseph and said, surely the Spirit of God is in you. And they may have even meant pagan gods when they were referring to him there. And this is actually the first time filled with the Spirit or Spirit-filled appears in the Bible. And notice, it's not a prophet, a patriarch, a king, or a priest. It's a handyman who is filled with the Spirit. Have we missed what it means to have a Spirit-filled life? Because so often we say Spirit-filled, and what we mean is a certain style of music. That music's very Spirit-filled Maybe we mean a certain emotional experience. That was a very spirit-filled service. We often equate it with an unplanned action or word, as if just spontaneity is somehow more in line with how the spirit works. But friends, the spirit-filled life is God giving you what you need in order to do what he calls you to do. God had given them the blueprint from heaven. Here's what to build But the people needed someone to build it. So God gave them what they needed in a craftsman filled with the Spirit to serve God in wisdom and to serve his people with excellence. So Bezalel, when he's filled with the Spirit, did careful, quiet, excellent work. And work that drew attention to the giver of his gifts and not his own gifts. Friends, so often people who talk a lot about spirit-filled also seem to be very self-filled. Look at how spirit-filled I am. And if that's their attitude, I'm sorry. It's not the Holy Spirit they're filled with. It may be another sort of spirit that they're consumed with. Because, friends, spirit-filled living often doesn't look very exciting. It doesn't look spontaneous. It doesn't bring attention to the one filled. But it was honest work that honored the Lord. Friends, the Spirit blew and created the world. So the Spirit filled Bezalel so that he could craft and transform gold, stone, wood into beautiful works of art. God filled him with the Spirit to build his glorious tent in the wilderness. And this is a reminder that God's people have always been a body with an expression of gifts and talents given by the Spirit of God. Friends, prophet and preachers are like the mouth. They're very helpful to communicate. They can also get you in a lot of trouble. Elders are sort of like the, the brain helping to lead the operation. But friends, I have yet to meet a body that's, much, that's, not, that's very good and helpful without some hands. 
The body isn't much without some good hands to do some good work. We have people around this room who may never preach a sermon, and that's okay, but they glorify God and they serve others when they build ramps, when they paint walls, when they serve their neighbors and they provide for their families. Hear this, if you're a believer in this room today who works with your hands, hear me, you do God-glorifying, meaningful, eternally significant work. You do spirit-filled and empowered work for the sake of the kingdom because everybody needs hands to function as they ought to function. But it's also important to realize If the whole body were hands, we'd have some problems. The hands, the body needs hands, and the hands need the body. And even a subcontractor needed a team of people around him because he could not work alone. He needed God's spirit, but he also needed others that God gave him. This is the third thing we need to see. We work according to God's calling. We work empowered by God's spirit. Third, we work together with God's people. We work together with God's people. Look at verse 6. And behold, I have appointed with him Ohaliab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. And I've given to all able men ability that they may make all that I've commanded you the tent of meeting, the ark of testimony, and the mercy seat that's on it, and all the furnishings of the tent the table and its utensils, the pure lampstand with its utensils, the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons, there's for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do." God just goes through and says, I've given you what you need and the people around you to do. You might call it the honey-do list. It's the holy-do list, right? This is what God would have them build. And just consider what diversity you needed in order to accomplish all of that. What they needed, God provided. He was given an assistant, Ohaliab, and a team of other able men to work beside him. He needed the right team in order to do the right work. And ladies, so you don't feel, feel left out, there were ladies there too. Look over at Exodus 35 as they're actually building this and putting this all together. Exodus 35, verse 25 to 26 says this, And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skills spun the goat's hair. So everybody had a role to play. The men, the women, all did their own handiwork. We actually read earlier that everybody gave of the materials that they had taken with them from Egypt. God had given them the plunder of the Egyptians when they left, and so they gave out of what God had given them to support this work. Everyone had a role to play. See, only those of the tribe of Levi could serve as priests in the tabernacle. But your two managers on the project, one was from the tribe of Judah, the other from the tribe of Dan, And ultimately, all of God's people had a role to play in building the house. 
Sometimes the team you're with makes all the difference in doing what God has called you to do. Sometimes God has called you to build the right team where the wrong team may currently exist. Some of us are trying to do God's calling surrounded by the wrong people and wondering why we're not getting anywhere. Friends, a boat moves in the right direction when it gets in the right currents. And the people you surround yourself with are a current sending you somewhere. You know, there's a common phrase that you are a combination of the five people you hang out with the most. That's a scary thought sometimes. Friends, we need to do God's calling, but we need to be willing to get in the boat with others that are going in the same direction. Some of us are off paddling by ourselves and trying to head upstream when we need to get in the right boat and get in the right waters, surround ourselves with the right people, and pursue the right calling. Here's the point. You need a fellowship of brothers and sisters around you to walk in God's way. That's what the church is. This is a stream for all of us to head in the same direction together to the best of our abilities. You need the church, and the church needs you. And the church will only work if we all get in the same boat and go toward the same goal, the glory of God. And in order to do the work that God calls you to do, you have to be with the people that God would have you be with. The blessed man, according to Psalm 1, is not the one who sits in the way of sinners and and sits in the way of scoffers, but the one who delights in the law of the Lord. Work must be done together with God's people. And notice, God said all this about work, and then he wants to spend the rest of the passage talking about rest. They always go together in the scripture. You never hear God talk about work without also talking about rest. Did you see from verse 12 all the way to verse 17, he repeats multiple times the Sabbath command, the fourth commandment. And look at verse 12. Look what he says here. And the Lord said to Moses, you're to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. He says, above all, make sure to rest. Make sure to follow my Sabbath command because he says it's a sign between Israel and And the Lord, now the Sabbath was one of those, it's kind of one of those interesting commands in the Old Testament because it's a part of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, but it's also a part of the ceremonial law. They had lots of days of rests and feasts and we don't live in Israel and we don't live under the Old Covenant. We can have a conversation about that another time if you're curious, but how this does come to us is by way of principle. The principle here still matters to us. And here is the point. Work must be done God's way. Work must be done God's way. He's going to say that you need to make sure that as you're building the tabernacle, God's primary concern wasn't did you get it done the fastest, but did you obey me and obey my Sabbath as you did it? Look at verse 14. 
You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. That's some heavy words for a Sunday morning there, right? He says, you need to make sure to take this break. Otherwise, there could be death penalty or you could just be sent away from God's people. Why was this so important? Well, first, because God's holy and God said it. And he says, hey, if you won't even take a break when I ask you to, what makes you think you're really going to do anything else that I ask you to do? But he also wants us to understand that not keeping the Sabbath was going to influence others to do the same. If you're constantly working, others that you work around and work with are often going to be influenced in the same way. And ultimately, the Sabbath was about faith. To take a whole day off of work required for them to trust God and to rely on God enough to turn off the phone Stop checking the emails, get off the job site, prioritize worship and rest more than hustle and bustle. Because this is how God designed us. Let me say, it sounds harsh to say that there would be a death penalty for not not keeping the Sabbath. Let me tell you, if you never rest, you're on your way to a death penalty one way or another. You'll do it to yourself. Look at verse 15. He goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Have you ever thought about how incredible it is? God created in six days and then rested on the seventh. The infinite self-sufficient, sovereign, inexhaustible creator rested. That's glorious and it's mysterious. And here's something even more glorious and mysterious. Verse 16. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and on the seventh day, he, was rest, he rested and was refreshed. God rested and was refreshed. He sat back at the end of the six days. He gave a sigh of job well done and enjoyed what he made. And while the Saturday Sabbath of the Old Covenant, again, was a particular sign between God and the nation of Israel, there is a lesson here for us. That as God's people, we should take time to set back, rest, and enjoy not only the fruit of our labors, but the God who has given us all things. You were not made to work seven days a week. Nor were you made to rest seven days a week. We were made to rightly balance hard, God-glorifying work and refreshing, God-glorifying rest. And I'll say, I don't think most of us in this room likely struggle with resting too much. Amen? There might be a sermon about that somewhere. But I think rather we're tempted to never stop and praise and thank God and trust that he will keep the world running. Did you know he doesn't need you to check your texts and your emails in order to keep the world spinning? 
He can handle it. And when we rest and when we work in such a way that we make space for rest, he is honored as the sovereign king. Because here's the thing. When you prioritize rest, it changes how you work. It might mean you have to work a couple extra hours during the week in order to make sure you're not working during your rest time. It may mean that we get projects done before the weekend comes, regardless of what it might take. Ultimately, it's an invitation to do God's work in God's way. And God has work for you to do. Maybe you've been sitting in this whole message and going, Pastor, I want to find my calling like Bezalel. I want to do what God calls me to do, but I don't know what that is. And today, I can't pull you open a verse that says, here's exactly what you need to do. But I can offer you some guidance because God's calling is typically found at the intersection of three places. And you have this in your notes. First, it's at the intersection of your passions. The intersection of your passions. What do you enjoy? Now, let me qualify that because I'm not saying what never frustrates you. Because there are lots of things that you enjoy that will also, and love and care for, that will also frustrate you. Parents, amen? There are things that you'll love that will often get on your nerves and be difficult. Those who found their calling understand this. But through it all, what brings you life, joy, refreshes you? God has made you and made you to enjoy certain things, and that's a gift in order to help you find your calling. What do you enjoy doing? Second, consider your gifting. Consider your gifting. Not just what do you enjoy, but what are you good at? There are a lot of things that I enjoy that I'm not necessarily very good at. Some of you know this before I got the call to preach when I was uh, in, in high school. When I was young and in middle school, I, wa- I wasn't a Christian. And my dream, man, I wanted to travel the world in a van. I'd written all these songs about girls that broke my heart. I was going to go live in a van and sing about how those girls did me wrong in middle school. <laughs> that's right, that's right. And I'm so glad the Lord won gave me the gift to make a joyful noise and not a very good noise. And two, that I didn't go down that route and make a life out of that. There's nothing wrong with that, but it would not have gone well for me in my middle school songwriting level, right? We've all seen people on those singing shows. Maybe one of my favorite things with American Idol is the auditions, right? The people, someone sent them in there knowing that they were this bad and not gifted, right? So remember, it's both what do you enjoy and what are you actually good at? I'm sorry, some of them are not going to win American Idol. I'm sorry, I am never going to play for the NBA. I don't care how much I practice, it's just not happening. Funny enough, when I was in elementary school, there was a buddy of mine who wanted to play football, and you could see that wasn't going to work for me, right? Friends, you've got to ask, what are you good at and what do you enjoy? What, what has God given you to do? Are you good with your hands? Can you communicate well? Can you organize volunteers? Are you detail-oriented? Are you funny? God's made you that way for a purpose, and he's made you in such a way that you can foster and grow in those gifts. You can get even better 
as you work those gifts. And finally, the third thing to consider is what has God said? Consider God's word. Because, friends, God's going to put opportunities in front of you. That's on God. You can't really make opportunities often appear. But you can know what you enjoy and foster those things. You can know what you're good at and grow in those. And you can know God's word because there are certain things God will never call you to do. He will never call you to murder, to steal, to defraud, to do something in the name of another God. In the case of these tabernacle builders, he says, here's the opportunity, but you've got to make sure to rest. So let me give you some illustrations here of why God's word is so important. You could find a guy who loves entrepreneurship, gets life from it, and he's really a gifted salesman. But without God's word, that could just make him a drug dealer, right? He could be really good at sales and sell some things that aren't a good thing to be selling, that don't love God and love others. There could be those who organize volunteers and love to feel like they're making a difference, but without God's word guiding them, that just makes them a gang leader who could hurt other people and do harm to them. You could have those who are great at talking and and love policy and being in places of authority, and then without God's word, they might go and become a politician and work for Congress, and we don't want that right? I think you get my point overall, right? Because at the intersection of your passion, your gifting, and God's word, that is where your calling is. That's where God would have you to abide, to work, and to prepare, and to be faithful where you are. Because God's calling is rarely to do one thing for the rest of your life. God will rarely call you to be one place and do one thing for the rest of your life. But rather, God would have you to be faithful where he has you to prepare you for the next season. When you consider your passion, your calling, and God's word, you're able to step into the opportunity in front of you and thrive in faithfulness. Let me close here. Because there was another craftsman of the tribe of Judah who quietly, patiently, and carefully worked as a carpenter. He had 30 years of nails, splinters, just doing his father's business, all to prepare him for his heavenly father's business. And God had him work in obscurity with nails and wood because one day what he worked with every day of his life, he would be hung on nails and wood. He would be crucified, nails in his feet and in his hands against two pieces of wood. And as he was crucified, the world would go dark. He would take his final breath and everyone would go, that man failed in his calling until the sunrise on the third day. When breath would enter his lungs again, his nail-pierced hands and feet would move, and now he is in the business of recreating us to be trophies of grace. He used to take wood and mold it into something beautiful. Now, friends, he takes broken, hopeless, forgotten sinners, the down and out, and he transforms them into a work of art. Who's this craftsman? His name is Jesus Christ, and he is still a craftsman. And he desires to craft you into something beautiful. 
But your transformation will require you to submit yourself to him. It only begins the moment you place your faith and your trust in him and let him do his work in you. The Bible puts it this way. I love this. This is Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of his own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you need to be recreated We serve a God who's a craftsman and will take even the darkest parts of your story that don't make sense and turn them for your good and your glory. We sang that this morning, didn't we? That he will turn all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He will transform you from sinner to saints. And if that is your testimony, if you are trusting in Jesus, if you're a baptized follower of Jesus, if you're a trophy of his grace, the Lord's Supper stands open to you this morning. The cup and the juice symbolizing all that Jesus did on that cross in order to recreate you. And the invitation for all of us, whether we, can take, whether we take the supper this morning or not, is to come to Jesus, to be transformed for the first time and again and again by the power of his word than to go forth as workmanships of his grace and glory to walk in what he has already prepared for you to do. The call of this text is for us to go and get to work. Let's pray and prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have a place for all of us in your kingdom. That Jesus didn't just die for folks to go and work a certain sort of job and do a certain sort of thing. But rather, Lord, you've called people from every tribe, tongue, language, nation, occupation, background, skill levels, handy men and non-handy men, so people from every sort of background to come and to follow you by grace through faith. Thank you, Jesus, that you allowed God to privately, quietly prepare you for the ministry that you would do on the cross. Thank you for submitting yourself to God and for the joy set before you enduring the cross for our sake. And thank you that through the cross and through the resurrection on the third day that we can be raised to newness of life and transformed into your workmanship, trophies of grace for your glory. Lord, may we abide in our calling and may we do what you would call us to do in the way that you've called us to do it. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
The Apostle Paul instructs us to take of what he called the Lord's Supper when we gather together. And he instructed us this way. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. A second reminder for us of all that Jesus has done in a way that we visibly and by faith consume all that Jesus has done and all that he says that we are. A reminder that we are children of God by grace through faith in Jesus, his son, and we've been sent forth with a, a message to proclaim, with a savior and a gospel to share. And I want us to close with an invitation to go into the world and to proclaim this Jesus, to proclaim about a craftsman who's able to take just basic pieces of wood and transform them into trophies of his grace. Receive this benediction as we close from 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.